Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. We want to build our ships. We want to build our planes. We want to build our military equipment with steel, with aluminum from our country. And now we're finally taking action to correct this long overdue problem. It's a travesty. Today, I'm defending America's national security by placing tariffs on foreign imports of steel and aluminum. We will have a 25% tariff on foreign steel and a 10% tariff on foreign aluminum when the product comes across our borders. Now I mean it for real. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Sorry, everybody. I jumped... uh... Jumped ahead there. I didn't mean to step on our president's announcement that uh, there's 25% tariff on steel, 10% on aluminum. The tariffs are being made real, and we will get into what all of that means. I'm coming to you from uh, Savannah, Georgia. I'm down here uh, on the road meeting with some folks, doing some things. Very excited to get a chance to see some members of Team Buck while I'm down here over the next couple of days. And uh, I'm Enjoying my time outside of New York City so far. I have to say, it's very nice down here. So Trump, tariffs. Oh, boy. People are really upset about this one. And here's what I will say about it. Uh, For one, we're going to see if he's right or not. And it's not going to be the end of the world one way or the other. The people who think that this is going to turn into a massive trade war, okay, they could always, if the tariffs become a huge problem and we're, suffering economically because of them, we could turn them off, right? The Trump administration can adapt to the realities of what is really, in fact, happening as a result of the tariffs. But I would note a a, a few things, and I'm trying to be contrarian and, and explore this more. I know I've been speaking of this to you for a few days uh, because I, I understand there's the, Hey, Milton Friedman, read it, check it out. There's no way tariffs are good. I've told you about the tariff with your grocer or the tariff with your pharmacist. I'm not tariff, sorry, trade deficit. (laughs) Whoops. Hopefully you don't have a tariff with your grocer. Special, special price that you have to pay to get in the door. Um, But there's definitely a, um, a sense right now that everyone is completely... Everyone is dead set against Trump on this one, that what he is doing is clearly wrong. And I just want to look at the possibilities that maybe this isn't what people think it is. Because he's already left open that there will be some negotiation room with other countries out there on this issue. Here's what he said about Canada and Mexico specifically, uh, Play 14. Uh, we're going to cut down the, the deficits one way or the other. We have a deficit with China of at least $500 billion. And when you add intellectual property, it's much higher than that. That's a year. 
At the same time, due to the unique nature of our relationship with Canada and Mexico, we're negotiating right now NAFTA. And we're going to hold off the tariff on those two countries to see whether or not we're able to make the deal on NAFTA. So now Trump is going to be heading into negotiations on NAFTA, which, as I have noted, had to be done. NAFTA is out of date. NAFTA needed to be updated. Trump is not off on some, you know, mission as a as a rogue operative when it comes to NAFTA, because it's time for anyone who pays attention to it. It's time to look at that agreement again and update it. But now he'll be sitting down with those countries or with the representatives of those countries and saying, "Okay, well, so I'm going to I'm going to go easy with you guys. Make sure we don't have any tariff problem here. But, you know, what are you going to do for me? I think that there is a a concept that has taken over the minds of, I I can't even really quantify it, just people that think they know about these things, that in international relations, the bad guys think in terms of zero sum, good for us, bad for you. Okay, I, I can buy that on a lot of things, not everything, but on a lot of things. But then they push it too far to... Everything is going to be completely equal for everybody. Free trade is what's happening, and it's going to just get better and better and stronger all the time. When the reality is that there are countries with tariffs all over the place. The reality is that right now you do not have a, a free trade market in, in international commerce. Obviously, China, that's one of the reasons why Trump is talking about all this, but other countries have many tariffs, and there are all these different agreements and clearly there there must be a way that we could have a better version of some of what's already going on right clearly there's oppor- there have to be opportunities for getting a better deal than what we have or else why how, how are we signing deals in the first place this is an opening for negotiation for trump i don't know if he's going to come out smelling good on this one or not i don't know It's clearly going against the conventional wisdom. Some people are also pointing out that on trade, on tariffs, we play some games, too. Export, import bank, everybody. Support for certain U.S. companies abroad, you know, Boeing and others, right? There's we've got our own state subsidy. Oh, the moment you start talking about agriculture, too, there's all kinds of games that are being played tariffs here and there i mean the the uk and uh, i don't know if it extends to the eu more generally but they have limitations on u.s agricultural imports based on safety concerns come on our food is safe right this, so there's a lot of stuff that's out there this is what i'm trying to trying to encapsulate you're talking about an enormously complicated web of relationships between all of these different countries And countries already have a lot of tariffs in place. And I would just wonder, you know, okay, so let's just take the 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 other side of the table point of view on this for a second. If tariffs are so obviously bad, self-defeating and wrong, why does China have tariffs in place? I, I just think before we dismiss entirely that Trump might be onto something from a negotiation standpoint here, as in, okay, we'll drop this tariff down if you do the following. We should understand, well, why is it that other countries have this? Why, why would the Chinese do this if it's just, uh, you know, the, the deficit you have to your grocer, or in their case, the surplus they have with the grocer, right? Because we're, we're on the other side of this transaction. So I, I think that uh, we're going to have to see how this plays out. By the way, there's, I just saw breaking news. There's going to be an announcement tonight on, uh, South, from South Korea on North Korea. 
Uh, my guess is it'll be something about it's supposed to happen in the next hour or so. Uh, my guess is that it will have to do with the negotiations, perhaps over. Well, we don't I don't know the specifics, but some kind of negotiations between North and South Korea. Is this the thaw, the diplomatic thaw in the Korean Peninsula that has eluded other administrations for decades? Could be. Uh, it's very, very early here, very early in the game. But I just wanted to note that we will bring that to you as soon as we have more. But then there's one other component of this. Trump today also brought the story home for a lot of people that were watching the, the press conference where he announced this because he had uh, steel workers up there with him. Play clip 16. I'm honored to be here with our incredible steel and aluminum workers. And you are truly the backbone of America. You know that. Very special people. I've known you and people that are very closely related to you for a long time. You know that. I think it's probably the reason I'm here. So I want to thank you. So Trump, in terms of the optics of this, how it looks, you've got the president of the United States who's been saying all throughout his campaign and since he's in office, I want to bring back manufacturing. I want to do more for the industrial base of this country for economic reasons, for national security reasons. And he allowed some of the workers that have been negatively affected by these policies that have been pla- have been in place. He allowed them to, to tell the American people what it's really like. There was one in particular. I think he was a, a steel worker, a union worker uh, or a, a union member and a steel worker who said that, you know, his father lost his job in a steel mill and he was supporting a family with six children and the devastation that left uh, for that household. Now, I understand that the counter argument to this, I am very aware of it. I've we, we can talk more about it here on the show if you want to, is that anytime you put in tariffs, it's going to benefit a small group of people or one industry for the for at the uh, expense, rather, of a whole bunch of other folks, the rest of us. And that may be true in this case. Like I said, we will have to see It all depends on what the final deal is. Um, but I'm I'm just not as convinced Uh, I'm just not as convinced as everybody else that Trump has no idea because we are really being told by the media and and look by a lot of my fellow conservatives, a lot of columnists and people that I know are uh, incredibly intelligent, well-versed people who are economists. I'm not an economist, right? I mean, people actually know this stuff backwards and forwards. They're all telling it's a bad idea. So we think Trump just has. So this is the one issue where. He's been on it all along for decades, actually. He's been consistent on it. And immigration and all these other things we talk about, he was the beginning of the wave and the recognition that actually there's a different way to approach it, a different way to think about it. He's entirely wrong on this one. I'm seeing people say that, oh, you know, the president, he's just an economic illiterate. He just doesn't understand what a tariff is. He doesn't understand what a trade imbalance means. Hmm. I, I think he's earned more. I think he's earned more of our trust than that, folks. I think that's a that's a fair way to put it. I think we need to let this play out a bit more. Uh, he's got a plan. There's no reason for him to push this as hard as he is against such opposition, including people in his own party. And and I think if you were to do a a poll of the Republican intelligentsia. Uh, a poll of the GOP establish, uh, establishment, they would probably go 80 percent 
against tariffs, I think. That would be my guess. Maybe 70%. I'm just making up this number, by the way. It's not scientific at all. Hashtag not science. But my guess is that uh, Trump will surprise us on this one, as he has with so many others. Uh, Think about it this way. No one's been able to get a really serious negotiation going with North Korea in quite a while, particularly if it involves their nukes. We were told that by being belligerent towards Kim Jong-un, by staring him down and refusing to back down to his threats and his belligerence, that Trump was risking war. Well, we just saw North Korea with its charm offensive at the Olympics. And I know that they're they're it's run by a homicidal um, mafia family. And I get all the bad. It's a, it's a prison camp and the whole thing. But that might be another example of Trump not doing what the conventional wisdom is and actually getting much better results. People have been saying all along, disruptive presidency, right? Shake things up, drain the swamp, all these things. Are you really going to drain the swamp if you do what everybody tells you to do? I, I, I know that this can be said, this, this thinking that I am presenting you with can be a little, uh, maybe a little, it seems a little simplistic or a little too well. It's just, it, it, it is what it is because you want it to be that way. But I'm telling you, there's something going on here, folks. I, I'm trying to see it for the long term, not just what it looks like in the stock market for the next 24 hours. Although I think the market was actually fine today. Um, so we'll see. Gary Cohen leaving the White House is now a reason for everyone to panic. I think we're all going to be OK. I think we'll survive without Gary Cohen as senior economic advisor. It's all going to be all right. That's just my guess. But what do you think about this? I'm really curious. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We will talk a bit more about this, immigration, and a whole lot more. Stay with me. Our factories were left to rot and to rust all over the place. Thriving communities turned into ghost towns. You guys know that, right? Not any longer. The workers who poured their souls into building this great nation were betrayed But that betrayal is now over. I'm delivering on a promise I made during the campaign, and I've been making it for a good part of my life. And part of the reason it happened is you and my message having to do with you. This is Gary Cohn's last meeting in the cabinet and of the cabinet, and he's been terrific. He may be a globalist, but I still like him. <laughs> he is seriously a globalist, no question. But you know what? In his own way, he's a nationalist because he loves our country. <laughs> I mean, Trump calling Gary, just going straight up, saying he's a globalist. Uh, globalist, the Illuminati, Bilbergs. Uh, anyway, let's get into it. Um, Trevor in Shadow Valley, Virginia. Hey, Trevor. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for your call. Hey, man, I want to talk a little bit about those tariffs. Yes. Do you remember back in Obama's first term when he put tariffs on Chinese passenger car tires? Uh, vaguely. No, not, not specifically? Okay. Well, he did 35% on tires, and he had it staggered over three years to go down 10% each year until it went away. The only thing that it, that it actually accomplished was that the American manufacturers – raised their price when the Chinese tires went up, so they were not underpriced and they could keep more profits. Huh. So you're saying it was a, it, so, it did not work in that case with Obama? I mean, it did not work as intended for Obama? No, no, not at but all. Isn't, isn't it, it interesting, it though, that, that Obama doing that 
people weren't saying, well, he's an economic illiterate because he's putting a tariff into place, right? I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, that people are making a huge deal out of Trump doing it, but Ob- how many folks listening, uh, we can all be honest with, honest with ourselves, even remember that Obama did that? I, I'm guessing very few. Uh, yeah, he did it, and he actually went back to the uh, the union in his second term and asked if they wanted another, another tariff, and they said, no, it was not productive, we don't need to do that. But the only reason why it wasn't productive and selling more American products is because the American CEOs jacked up their price because they have a better product, they feel, and they pocketed more profits. That's the only reason why it failed. Oh, so you're saying it failed specifically in that circumstance, but it might not have failed otherwise. I mean, do you it think all tariffs not. are a bad idea, or you just thought that tariff, because the way it played out, was a bad idea? If, if we would keep our prices where they are currently for American products and 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 accept the fact that our product can be sold for less money than a Chinese product, then it could work. But there's such a chip on people's shoulder in America that I work in America, and my American product is far better than a Chinese product. So no matter how much tax you put on that Chinese product, I am going to charge more for mine because it's better. And therefore, the American companies make more profit. All right, Trevor. Well, thank you for the uh, the also the, the reminder about what had happened in the previous administration. Shield, so I appreciate you appreciate you calling in. We'll we'll talk a bit more about this, folks. I mean, I I think this is look. This is really about China. China. We got to get the we got to get a Trump drop for the radio where he goes China. Uh, but that's that's what this is all about. The stuff about the EU and how they're going to start. By the way. Don't just let this slip by the wayside. Some of the EU countries have been hinting that they're not just going to retaliate with tariffs, but tariffs in U.S. states that went for Trump that would specifically be hurtful to the Republican Party in the midterms. Sounds a little bit like meddling, doesn't it? They're going to target industries based on the political affiliation of the state that those industries are predominantly located in. By the way, that meddling would be a lot more effective than some social media accounts. I'm just saying. 844-900-2825. We will take more of your calls, folks. I, I think this is a fascinating discussion because I just, it's its being uh, treated with too much clarity and simplicity, in my opinion. There's more going on here. We'll be back. Uh, we're negotiating with Mexico. We're negotiating with Canada and uh, the NAFTA. And depending on whether or not we reach a deal, also very much involved with that is national defense. Uh, but if we reach a deal, it's most likely that we won't be charging those two countries the tariffs. We'll be doing something with some other countries. We're going to be very flexible. So I, Trump is positioning all of this as just the beginning of a much broader set of negotiations about trade and about the economy. He's not saying that anything is set in stone or set in steel, perhaps. Uh, But let's just for a moment walk through this together, shall we? Uh, Let's assume that tariffs are, and I understand historically there's a lot of evidence for tariffs are very uh, destructive economically and geopolitically. I get it, right? We could talk about Smoot-Hawley, Herbert Hoover, lots of tariffs on lots of things. And while it didn't cause the Great Depression, people say it certainly, certainly didn't help. Um, there's there's a lot of evidence it was a bad idea. Now, as I said to you, until the uh, a, what of eighteen twenty nine, I want to say, or no, I'm trying to think of when. Well, just put it aside for a second. For a long time, 
the only way that you could really fund the federal government was through tariffs. So our country, if we're, we're always looking to the founders for wisdom. The founders were like, oh, yeah, tariffs. We need those. Let's do those. I know a different economy, you know, wooden ships taking goods across the ocean for, you know, take weeks at a time and everything. It's a different deal. But nonetheless, tariffs originally were how we were getting things paid for. And I think a lot of us, if it were between an income tax and tariffs, we'd be like, you know what? Let's give this tariffs thing a whirl. But he, here's where my... Uh, Here's what just doesn't sit what uh, sit right with me, right? This is where, and as I said, I do appreciate the messages. No, Buck, listen to this account. I get it. I understand. Tariffs, bad. I, I, I've heard all of that. I get it. I think all of you have heard it too, right? We all know that this has now become the thing that everyone says. And if you want to sound like you know what's going on, you just say tariffs, bad. But there must be additional layers to it. And let me tell you why I think there are some additional layers. Maybe that's the best way to go. So look what's happened over the last... 25 years or so with China and Trump has had a fixation on China for a long time. We know we know this and it was a big uh, point of uh, policy discussion during his campaign. But over the last 25 years, China has become the second largest economy in the world. And it has uh, done that through currency manipulation, largely. So, so the, the Chinese yuan is pegged at a very low level so that the Chinese can essentially uh, outperform us or outperform other countries on, on exports because of the way that they peg their currency. And because they keep the currency very low, it means that they're um, more able to be an export superpower. And they've been doing this for a long time. And as a result... Uh, They've gotten a huge share of the world's export market, right? China has become the world's Walmart. And it's gone from a, in the last couple of decades, a, an, a GDP of a couple of hundred billion to a GDP of a few trillion. So something's working for them, right? They've gotten a lot wealthier and GDP is a lot higher and they've done this. Sure, it's a very large country. Keep in mind also GDP per capita. So the average uh, Chinese citizen is still much less well off than the average American citizen or Western or, or European EU citizen. Uh, but a, a lot of Chinese have been taken out of uh, really miserable poverty, a huge number in recent decades as the economy has become larger there. And look, that's a good thing, right? We want prosperity for everybody. We think that the the richer and more uh, fulfilled the, the people uh, around the world are, the less likely to have uh, really big problems, or at least that's what we'd like to think. Um, <laughs> history may have a slightly different interpretation of what people do when they have a lot and they are able to think about what they would want for more, but nonetheless... But China's been playing this game for a long time. They have become the export superpower. And over the course of 25 years, their GDP has gotten a lot bigger. And they have also simultaneously been stealing our intellectual property, especially in the last, I mean, call it last 10 to 15 years, though, who knows. But in the Internet era, Chinese theft of information technology has just been at, at breakneck speed. And that's long-term stuff. What is really our advantage over the Chinese, economically speaking? 
is we yeah we've got great companies management culture rule of law there are some things that we have that they don't obviously we don't have a a communist uh, a communist party that runs the country although they're not really communist right they've created this hybrid model of state capitalism run by a communist party run by a central committee um, but somehow they've been able to play this game and get a lot more wealthy and powerful as a country and they've done it by currency manipulation and tariffs so you know what i'm what i'm trying to get to with some of this is that actions that the trump administration are taking right now that are targeted specifically at china and the chinese export market aren't the first they're not the opening shots of a trade war they're a response to a one-sided trade war that's been going on for the last 25 years now we could say oh but it's a buck it's better for us because the way that we can float our debt is if we got the chinese buying our treasuries you've got i think the chinese the largest holder of uh the largest the large holder of, of u.s debt abroad for sure they've got a few trillion dollars um that they're holding and they're investing in a lot of U.S. Treasuries. So, yeah, they've been propping up to an extent uh, the way that we finance our own economy here. But you also run into boom and bust cycles and the long term consequences of this stuff may be really, really bad. You know, there's also a school of thought that 20 trillion dollars in debt as we are, maybe people enabling us or maybe foreign countries enabling us to continue on as we are is not not the wisest course, but. No one thinks in, well, I actually think the Chinese, uh, the Chinese Central Committee does think in terms of 20, 30 years, and we think in terms of the next 24-hour news cycle. There is a, there is a difference there. When Trump speaks about our, our leaders being smart or not smart and says Chinese leaders are smarter, uh, you look at the re- recent history of Chinese economic growth versus some of the mistakes that have been made by our own leadership and I'm not saying he's right all the time, but, you know, there's a case to be made here and there that China has um, been pushing for growth and been successful in that. And the whole economy, I mean, the, the whole state is really dependent on the expansion of growth and, and economic uh, elevation of what had been a, a pretty desperately poor population, particularly in the rural areas of the country. So, so this, there's been a trade war going on. So we, we need to keep that in mind. Other countries do have tariffs. How do we respond to them? We just say, oh, that's great. They've got tariffs. We don't. We play by the rules. They're naughty. Well, why are they doing it if it's so obviously stupid? Why would they want to do that? I, I think we should at least have answers to those questions. And we shouldn't forget that the Chinese have been playing games with their currency and uh, artificially keeping their currency at a very low level vis-a-vis the dollar so that they can get an economic advantage and they can become this export superpower. And they're the number two country in the world right now in terms of economic and military might. So something to think about there. And we are heading for a, a clash of hegemons at a minimum economically. And maybe it's starting right now. Who knows? But that is going to happen. History tells us that at some point we are going to come to a an impasse with China. And it's not just going to be thanks for selling us all of the cheap stuff that our people love, all those consumer goods. There's going to be other stuff, too. That's where I think the intellectual property theft comes in and their long-term plan for having military and technological parity with us, which is what they want. Then you got a country of people that has 
the same technological prowess as a very large pool from which to draw uh, manpower and resources for its military. And it's like, you know what? We're calling the shots now. So I'm just trying to look this out, look at look at this from a long term perspective. I don't see this as just being as rosy as well. You know, free trade. It's kind of like some of my my friends who are conservatives who just are always saying the free, you know, let let the market decide. And I sit around and say, okay, sure, I'm with you. Philosophically, the free market should always the free market is always the best determined uh, best way to determine price and goods and services and all of that. But understand that whenever we're having that discussion in America, whether it's at the state level or federal level, there's already all kinds of distortions in the market. We're not dealing with a free market. So just to say, well, let the market decide is to say, well, let the market distortions that are already in place stay in place. Distortions like, for example, in the case of China, keeping their currency artificially pegged at a very low level. That is a distortion in international trade. That's not just the way that it is because of, you know, Adam Smith. Okay, that's not that's not what's happening. So I like to give you a little bit. I like to spice it up here, folks. We'll get into immigration in the next hour. If you've got thoughts on this China thing, I would love to hear it from uh, from any of you. If you think that to this uh, negotiation round that Trump is trying to set off with a number of different uh, trading partners is a good idea. I'd like to hear about that, too. Or if you just want to yell at me and say that Buck Milton Friedman's rolling over and rolling over in his grave right now, how could you? How could you even question it for a second? I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm just asking questions. The, the, the quintessential analyst slash talk show host dodge, right? I'm just asking questions. Here's what I'm doing. We'll be right back. Everybody, my name is Scott Sarge. I'm president of Local 2227. And I'd like to tell you a story about uh, my father during the 80s. Uh, he lost his job <clears throat> due to uh, imports coming into this country. And uh, I just want to tell you what that does to a man with six kids is devastating. So I, I never forgot that looking into his eyes in my household, what that does to a family. You hear about it. But when you're actually involved and it impacts you, it's, it, it, it'll never leave you. So uh, with that being said, for Her- Herman Sarich, uh, your story didn't end. And uh, for all the uh, people that I represent at my union, I never want to see it happen again. That was the steelworker that I mentioned before. Comes from a steelworker family. And President Trump presented some of their stories today. I invited them to speak at the podium and that was one of the more uh, memorable and uh, and touching and difficult of the speeches. Um, Jesse in Jackson, Mississippi. Good to have you on, sir. How's it going, Buck? I'm all right. Shields high. Thanks for the call. Shields high, brother. Look, uh, first I want to tell you that even though you're not full-throatedly agreeing with Trump, I appreciate the fact that you're kind of sort of straddling the fence on our side on with this tariff thing because – to be real honest with you, Buck, I mean, we've been in trade wars for decades. They just call it something different. But there's 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 always trade wars going on. And, you know, the tariff, the tariff is kind of like the wooden spoon Mama used to swat you with when you were reaching for the cookie jar just before dinner. And, you know, it, 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 they do the tariffs just basically to get the other side to act right. And, uh, you know, I, I think Trump has been exposed to enough of this in his lifetime and his business career that he knows what he's doing, and I trust him. I mean, I really do. 
Yeah, well, uh, I, I would I would note that on other issues, and Jesse, this is what makes me think that, and, and by the way, I appreciate that you appreciate that I'm trying to give it a full hearing and not just be dismissive. I think right now, look, I know, I know what the so-called smart set among the conservatives says about this. They say that this is because Trump doesn't know what he's doing. He's out of his depth. He's out of his element, you know, and case closed. But I turn around to them and I say, okay, well, what is China? What has China been doing for the last two decades? Is that is that is that free trade? Is that fair trade? We should just let it go without any any response whatsoever from our side. I think the answer they give is yeah, just let okay. So we just let China cheat and do whatever it wants: currency manipulation, intellectual property theft, all the things that it's doing, and just hope that one day they'll be nice. And I think the answer from that same smart set is yeah, yeah, that that that's right. And that's not an answer. Well. I think I think when you take a snapshot of Capitol Hill and all the people up there in, in the Senate and the House and how much money they have in their bank accounts versus how much money they actually earn in their jobs, that gives you a good idea about just how much lobbying goes on up there to keep things like this quiet or to steer the ship down that little narrow canal that they want it on. And and that's probably a lot to do with why they're screaming, oh, Trump's lost his mind with these tariffs. Right. Well, what, what you see is, you know, you remember that that uh, that uh, exchange? I don't know if you've seen the movie, Jesse, but it's very entertaining in Charlie Wilson's war where he says voters don't elect members of Congress. Donors do. You know, it's just kind of slipped much. in there. But I think with a lot of this, uh, a lot of this economic panic and, oh, gosh, you know, Cohn is leaving the White House. And it's like, well, are, are we. Are we seeing the Trump administration actually try to do something that would be helpful for wages and the manufacturing base in this country, but might might create a, a temporary uh, dislocation or blip or whatever, you know, downturn in the stock market, which has been roaring for Trump's first year in office? You know, I, I think we need to look at the, the trade offs here and see what. By the way, you know, when, when I was talking about Smoot Hawley before, I think that the the, the tariff in Smoot Hawley. Well, uh, under Hoover was like 60 percent on a lot of things. That's obviously quite different. Right. He's talking about 10 percent, 25 percent negotiable. He's trying to not shut out all other exports. He's not trying to shut down these different industries in other countries. What he's saying is this is a tool for trying to get different behavior. And I, I feel like why is that such a crazy notion to people? It seems like everyone dismisses it right out of hand. And I'm just not I'm not there yet. Jesse, but maybe I will be. If my 401k is worth nothing at the end of the month, then I'll be pretty sad. The other point I was trying to make it is my brother worked for Bethlehem Steel for 19 years in Buffalo. Okay, he was a coke oven operator and uh, uh, was you know was pretty high up on on the, on the food chain. And of course, they're, they're they're a union plant. They they always were. They always would be if they were still in existence. But these guys, the union, would go on strike every three to six months. And now this is a time when all this all this import steel's coming in. And Bethlehem literally called together a giant family meeting. And of course, the union reps came, and they said, "Look, we're getting our brains beat out here by by you know import steel. And you guys, all you can do is cry for more, 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 more. If you don't stop striking on us, if you don't give us at least six months without a strike." We're going to have to. We're going to have to shut down. Well, the union didn't believe it, and the next time they went on strike, five mile long steel plant in Buffalo, New York, went under and is now a giant parking lot. Well, Jesse, man, thank you for bringing that story home for us and making it real. We appreciate it, and it's good for people to know what really goes on. Team, we'll be back in just a few minutes with the second hour. Stay right there. 
Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for joining. An honor, a privilege, and a pleasure to have you with me. We have breaking news here, and we'll go to it live as soon as it comes on air. Uh, You have South Korea's national security advisor is going to be making an announcement on North Korea at the White House. And I'm seeing some early reporting uh, that... It's going to be about a possible halt to North, an offer of a halt to North Korean missile testing, which had been putting us on this very uh, precarious pathway where people thought that if North Korea continued with its belligerent behavior, there was a real possibility of military conflict. We were going to have to make them stop, which could have been most likely would have been disastrous. Um, here is uh, here is what we have on this reporting uh, from from CNN uh, from Caitlin Collins, actually, who's from Alabama and uh, used to be the Daily Caller and is a, a very good reporter and a very nice lady. Uh, she Our writes. Will Ripley. Oh, do we have it? Oh, no, no. That's that's something else. That was no, no different. That was a different clip. Uh, oh, that's all right. That's all right, John. I'm in Savannah here live on the show. We've got the Freedom Hut team up in New York. So occasionally if you hear something that sounds a little funky, it's because we're uh, we're stretched all over the country right now. But the team is, you know, the, the, the team is still working, working as a unit. The orchestra still plays, my friends, even if we're not sitting in the same pit. So this is what we got report from CNN. Uh, The president was on his way to the East Wing to take photos when he made the decision to pop into the briefing room. This is earlier today and tell the press that the South Koreans would make a major announcement regarding North Korea. And the update on at 642 p.m. here is North Korea offers to suspend nuclear missile testing. Uh, So that would be that would be a quite a quite a. New development here in what's going on with North Korea. I mean, a few things that I'd like to say as we get ready for this. I think we'll be going live to the, uh, well, it could be any minute now, though, who knows? Some of these things can get very delayed. I just recall late last year, the stories that were being written and the analysis that was out there about how Trump was going to bring about Armageddon. The world quite literally... Uh, would end unless Trump stopped with his tweeting. He was he was poking the North Korean dictator and pushing him into a corner and nuclear annihilation would be the result if we didn't stop. Right. Well, for North Korea, but we might get hit in the process. That was the big concern. And also the concern about losing 20 to 25 million North Koreans, almost all of whom are prisoners in their own country and on a purely humanitarian level. Um, we we would like them all to be safe and to be free. You know, our our enemy is not actually the North Korean people. I always think it's very important that we establish these differences in our minds. I I have no problem with the North Korean people, neither do you. Our problem is with the regime. It's with the uh, maniacal dictator dynasty of the Kim family, just as our problem with Iran is not the Iranian people. In fact, the Iranian people are... Uh, much more pro-American in their inclinations than you'd ever get a sense of from Iranian state media or anything else. Uh, 
it's the regime that we have a problem with. It is the government. It is the political body that, in the case of North Korea, has enslaved the people. And in the case of Iran, is not quite far behind. But we were being told that Trump was bringing us to the brink of nuclear war. And now here we are awaiting what could be the biggest diplomatic breakthrough with regard to North Korea in years. I think fair to say bigger than anything accomplished in the eight years of Obama's presidency. If, in fact, there is a nuclear there is a nuclear testing freeze that that is agreed upon and holds. Look, this could be I I totally know the backstory here and the history. I totally get it. This could be a head fake by the North Koreans. This could just be buying time. But look at what's really gone on here. Trump has focused on this issue. He has, you know, people like to forget this in the media. There's all oh, the White House in disarray and chaos. You know what's not in disarray and chaos? General Mattis, the Pentagon. You know what's not in disarray and uh, chaos? General McMaster is a national security advisor. I mean, there's not just very serious people who are in top national security positions in this administration. There are people who even Trump's most spiteful detractors have to admit yeah, Mattis is the real deal. Yeah, McMaster is the real deal. I'm not saying everyone agrees with McMaster or Mattis on everything, but they're, they're, they're as legit as legit gets in those positions. And I think that's very easy. Oh, let's hope Hicks said white lies in the in the briefing or not in the you know behind closed door testimony. Oh my gosh. Wait, we've got it now. Oh, they're coming out. Okay, so we're going to go live to this announcement here in just a moment. They're going to tell us what's going on. Then we'll analyze it together. It'll be kind of a real-time buck brief on national security. But I think this will be this could, this is quite a day for the administration. Uh, John, you let me know in New York when we when we have it. Uh, oh, we're going to it right now, team. Live the, the announcement on North Korea, including my close friend General McMaster. I explained to President Trump that his leadership and his maximum pressure policy, together with international solidarity, brought us to this juncture. I expressed President Moon Jae-in's personal gratitude for President Trump's leadership. I told President, President Trump that in our meeting, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un said he is committed to denuclearization. Kim pledged that North Korea will refrain from any further nuclear or missile tests. He understands that the routine joint military exercises between the Republic of Korea and the United States must continue. And he expressed his eagerness to meet President Trump as soon as possible. President Trump appreciated the briefing and said he would meet Kim Jong-un by May to achieve permanent denuclearization. The Republic of Korea, along with the United States, Japan, and our many partners around the world remain fully and resolutely committed to the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Along with President Trump, we are optimistic about continuing a diplomatic process to test the possibility of a peaceful resolution. The Republic of Korea, the United States, and our partners stand together 
in insisting that we not repeat the mistakes of the past and that the pressure will continue until North Korea matches its words with concrete actions. Thank you. Wow. That is quite a statement from the National Security Advisor of the Republic of Korea, of South Korea. He's saying that Kim Jong-un has agreed to denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. That means Kim Jong-un has said that he would be willing to give up his nukes. He also says that he wants to meet with President Trump in person and understands that the U.S. and South Korea will continue on their military uh, military drills going forward. You know, is open, open to denuclearization, my friends. That is the, that is the specific quote from this that really needs a lot of attention Um, this is huge let's understand that the one place in the world with the greatest likelihood of conventional level military conflict right now with each passing day is North Korea the greatest concentration of immediate use military force in the world is the DMZ between North and South Korea and No administration in decades has been able to put a dent in North Korea's nuclear weapons advances, never mind just its program. Its nukes are getting more dangerous and more uh, efficient. It's also getting better at missile technology. And it has duped administration after administration. Look, we we go into this, my friends, with, with wide eyes. We understand. We know that this is not a regime that has earned any trust. This is not a regime that can be trusted. We can't take Kim Jong-un's word for anything as is, but we also can't dismiss out of hand that this could be a major diplomatic opening. I mean, North Korea is saying they will suspend nuclear missile testing and are open to denuclearization is enormous this would be if this puts us on a path towards actual denuclearization trump yes that's right this administration will have put in motion the most significant diplomatic national security victory in the post-cold war era Think about that for a moment. This administration that is ridiculed by the press, oh, they know nothing. Oh, all of their isolationism and their lack of fancy foreign policy pedigrees. We may be standing right now on the precipice of the most momentous diplomatic national security advance of of my lifetime or of the the post-Soviet adult lifetime. How about that? This is huge. Um, Is it real? We don't know. Will it happen? Too soon to tell. But is it at least moving in the right direction? Absolutely. Does this show that perhaps Trump knows some things that his detractors, whether on national security or dare I even say maybe the economy, don't take into account? At least have to leave ourselves open to that possibility, my friends. The Obama administration in eight years got zero, got a a zero out of 10 on the uh, 
Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Got a negative 10 on the Iran nuclear program, maybe a negative 5, to be fair, because all they did was take the pressure off the regime and give it a lifeline and let them keep their nukes as is, keep them in a mothballed state, but nothing goes away. And on North and South Korea, it was just status quo. Give them a zero on that one. They didn't make it markedly worse, but they certainly didn't make it better. Trump's been in office for one year, taking a different approach, mocked, ridiculed for that approach. Oh, how could he call him Little Rocket Man, referring to Kim Jong-un? That's so dangerous. It's so dumb. Do you remember any announcement like this from South Korea in the last eight years before Trump? I certainly don't. To even talk about denuclearization for Kim Jong-un is a radical departure from what has been North Korean state policy and posture for a long time. Nukes are the apex of force. This is a regime that is built upon nothing but brute force. That they would even think about lessening that grip or at least express some willingness to do so is is a shock. But it could be it could be the beginning of something very, very good, very special. I mean, just imagine imagine what the world starts to look like in a national security sense if the greatest uh, single rogue state threat took real strides towards normalization. Now, look, I we we are at the first stage of what would be a multi-year process. This is not going to come quickly, and it could get derailed, and it could all be a fake. But just to get to this point is meaningful, and it shows that, yes, the haters, when it comes to how Trump approaches North Korea, were wrong. They thought they were so much smarter than they were. And you know what? What's most important here is that people are safe, that our country's national security is respected and preserved, that we don't have to get involved in another foreign war somewhere. And it would be really nice that North Korea moved away from being a threat to South Korea's existence, a threat to Japan's existence. And oh, by the way, it does not have to be a massive prison camp above ground and a mass grave below it. It doesn't have to be that. Trump sees that. His team, his national security team, sees that. And it looks like maybe the North, I mean, the South Korean leadership is also starting to see that there's an opening here. And all great diplomatic overtures start with an opening. All right, we'll, we'll hit a quick break and uh, we'll be back with more. Stay with me. In terms of direct talks with the United States, and you asked negotiations, and we're a long ways from negotiations. I think it's we just need to be very clear-eyed and realistic about it. I think the first step, and I've said this before, is is to have talks. So there you go. Look, I gotta stay sober-minded about this. I get it. That was Secretary of State Tillerson saying, "Look, we're we're a long way from." And, and I I didn't mean to get ahead of where we are when I was just saying, "Wow, that's." That's a pretty big announcement on the North Korea issue. Look, the, the history of North Korea stretching back for three three U.S. administrations now on the nuclear issue is very straightforward. They do bad stuff. We say, "Hey, stop doing bad stuff." They say, "Well, give us some give us some things, usually food, and uh, you know, and, and help us out, and we'll talk, and we'll do some things." And and then they just back out of everything. Keep the obviously keep whatever we gave them and start acting badly again. 
So that very well could happen here. I mean, if you're a betting man, that's probably what what would happen uh, on North Korea. But then again, the only way that the only way that we get to a better future with this country that is threatening. Remember, this is not just some far away, far away uh, hermit kingdom that we can ignore. They're threatening to nuke us, right? They're saying that they're going to be able to fire nukes at Hawaii, at the U.S. At, I mean, may, sorry, sorry, Hawaii. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that, Hawaii. Uh, you know, the mainland U.S. Alaska's like, watch it, Buck. I know, I know. You know, the, I meant the lower 48. Um, but still, this is how you would get to a different outcome. This kind of a, an overture, this kind of an opening. Now, look, the critics are going to come out on this one and say right away that by even but the notion of Trump meeting directly with Kim Jong-un will be a propaganda bonanza for Kim uh, for the Kim dynasty, for the regime. That's true. But maybe there'll be preconditions that have to be met. Remember, Trump can also back out of that, too. You know, everyone assumes, oh, well, we were saying these things, but they're just going to lie, cheat and steal and not do anything that they say they will. All right. Well, then we also have it in uh, in our power to respond diplomatically and otherwise, I would note. So this is how this is how things can begin to improve there. I am not uh, a bright eyed optimist about this. I'm not looking at this and saying, oh, look what Trump has done. He's a genius. Do I think that North Korea is probably feeling the, the bite of sanctions a little too much? They're trying to buy a little time. Yeah, I do. But this is at least the beginnings of a conversation that could lead to a more constructive outcome. I mean, at some point, right, we, we do get into that old paradigm of what are, what are your options? This is with the State Department. It's a joke, but a pretty, pretty dark humor. What does every State Department diplomat say your three options are? Uh, suffer in silence, nuclear war, or diplomacy. In the case of North Korea, that's pretty much, those are the options, right? We can suffer and worry and allow the North Korean people to continue to suffer, war or diplomacy. So they're trying the latter. So we'll have to see. Uh, see how this shakes out. Team, uh, let me know your thoughts on this, and we'll get into some other stuff coming up here right after the break. Remember that protest at uh, Christina Hoff Summers' speech? She's a Ph.D. I think she's also a registered Democrat, by the way. Um, she's a Ph.D., and she talks about women's issues and how some women's issues aren't real issues, like the pay gap, for example, or the uh, campus rape uh, culture, That's not, which is not a real thing. She talks about that, and that men and women are different biologically, and that that results in differences in many aspects of life. And she is treated by the left as though she, she were a... a fascist. They call her a fascist. In fact, here's some of the chants from her speech. Play it. Eight. We choose to protest. To protest. Male supremacy. Male supremacy. Not give it. Not give it. A platform. A platform. No platform for fascists. No platform at all. <laughs> I think they're singing these little words. No platform for fascists. No platform for fascists. Figure at least the left. They're supposed to be culturally interesting. They could get some better better singing going there. 
Oh, the one thing that she says that Christina Hoff Summer says that's really upsetting to the left, and I know it's International Women's Day, I'll talk about it more later, but the gender gap in STEM fields is not science, technology, and math and engineering is not the result of sexism or simply the result of sexism. People go crazy when she says that. And then when you point out, well, hold on a second, why veterinarians are very well compensated, they go to medical school and it's a it's an excellent profession to be in in this country. I'm sure in, in any country, really, or most countries. Uh, why is that dominated by women? Why are why is there a disparity of females in uh, some of some aspects of science, some of the uh, the sciences, and we don't ever talk about it? And that's just considered normal. You, know, you have female dominance in the nursing profession, for example, trained profession dealing about why is that the case? Pediatricians, dispro- uh, disproportionately female. Uh, why is, is that? Is there sexism at work? Just these are questions that you'd ask if you actually wanted to know what's going on. But people don't want to know what's going on. They just want to be told that there's this evil patriarchy that's going on. That protest that I told you about earlier in the week that was out at uh, Portland State University. I forget. It was out on the West Coast somewhere. Uh, it was at a law school, folks. I didn't even realize. And those were law students. Those weren't even undergrads. These are people that have finished four-year degrees, are now studying to be, well, to practice law, you would think, in some capacity. Otherwise, one, some, one bit of good advice that I received a long time ago is, don't go to law school if you're not going to do any law. <laughs> that sounds that sounds sensible to me. Uh, but it was oh Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. Thank you. There we go. And they were really upset about her coming. And they wrote a letter. The Young Democratic Socialists of America chapter at a law school. Folks, Demo- this is the Democratic Socialist chapter at the law school. You can't make this stuff up. They wrote that her speech amounted to, quote, an act of aggression and violence. And then they went on to write, quote, freedom of speech is certainly an important tenet to a free, healthy society. But that freedom stops when it has a significant and violent impact on other individuals. My friends, these are soon to be lawyers who think that a speech by a Ph.D., in her area of expertise at a law school is violence. She's not even talking about violence, but they think this is violence. This is how you get like Ninth Circuit judges, by the way. You know, this is how you get some of the people in the legal profession. Like, how do they come up with this? Oh, yeah. Well, where do we get all these lawyers that think that the Second Amendment doesn't actually have anything to do with the right to bear arms? Right. I mean, how do you. Oh, that's right. Because we've got law schools now that are just as left-wing, just as radical as the undergraduate campuses are. In fact, they've realized that given how powerful, we live in an overly litigious society, but that's that's a, a different line of inquiry that we'll get to another day. Too much, law, too much uh, lawyering and lawsuits in America, but nonetheless, very powerful component of our society is the, the legal profession. And it has been not quite as overtaken by the radical left as liberal arts programs and colleges, but it's getting there. It's on the way. I've got friends in law schools that tell me that all this stuff of, you know, Black Lives Matter and Me Too and Antifa and all these different 
leftist political movements, one kind or another, are treated with reverence on the campuses. The professors are all in favor of it. You know, no one's ever like, yeah, maybe your protest group shouldn't break the law as part of its protests. You know, maybe destroying private property is not like a good idea. Antifa. Antifa. Do we have it? I always get so excited. Antifa. Whoa, there it is. <laughs> Thank you, sir. See? Good times. Just what I needed. Trump's there. By the way, can you guys get a China drop for me later, too? We need to get it. Yeah, no, it's all right. We, we could do we could even do like a super cut of a whole bunch of different ways that Trump says China because it's amazing. So anyway, in this speech, though, like I said, they say that they say that speech is violence. These are soon. These are law school students. They've already finished. So these people are at a minimum in their mid 20s or 23, 24, 25. Some of them probably in their 30s. Who knows? Some of them are probably like me, you know, getting on the wrong side of uh, wrong side of that uh, that that hill. Um, nonetheless, then you got some people that are pointing out how crazy this is, like uh, Barry Weiss, who's a columnist for The New York Times. And she wrote a piece how we're all fascists now. This is very important because they were saying that Christina, these law students are saying Christina Huff Summers is a fascist. By the way, I don't know her. I've never met her. I'm just familiar with her work. Uh, but they're saying she's a fascist. Well, what does that even mean? If you start calling everybody that you that doesn't completely agree with the far progressive left a fascist, does the term even have meaning? Is there really a, a point to using the term fat other than just fascism equals bad? And full full credit to uh, Jonah Goldberg with liberal fascism, his book, which if you haven't read, I, I will highly recommend to you. I have in the past as well, where he says that one, the history of fascism has been intentionally uh, muddied up and really dismembered and discarded by the left because fascism comes from the left. So they don't want to they don't want to deal with that. Fascism is a is a heresy is a is a form of collectivism is really a, a heresy of um, the the statist authoritarian communism that you see in the 20th century. That they were branches of the same tree, but nonetheless. You should read liberal fascism if you get a chance. I'd uh, recommend it. I mean, I've never even met Jonah in person, but I think it's a good book. So that's one thing. They just say fascist because it means bad. And now they'll apply it in ways, though, that are just completely crazy. In, the, in this essay that Barry Weiss wrote, and she's getting piled on by the left now for this. She points out that Laura Kipnis, you can't make this stuff up, folks. Uh, this is important for all of us to remember. Laura Kipnis, a feminist Film studies professor at Northwestern wrote an essay for the Chronicle of Higher Education about how there are too many Title IX sexual misconduct investigations on campuses and then had two graduate students file a Title IX complaint against her. Anyone want to guess why? On the grounds that her article created a hostile environment. It's, it's so perfect, isn't it? You, you get a, a professor who writes an article about how there are too many hostile environment accusations on campus now, and students file a grievance against her for the article being a hostile environment creator. That, that's if, if you're trying to encapsulate the modern academy, if you're trying to really nail down what it is to be on a college campus these days, I think that pretty much does it for you. You're, you're pretty much there with that. Another instance that Barry Weiss mentions here in her, in her piece, we are all fascists now, where she's saying that now, hey, if you are not super woke, which is a term you're like, what woke is like, you, you're like, 
you know, you're like part of the left and the progressives and you're like, oh, like equality with the women and then the in the uprising against the patriarchy and the, you know, all that stuff, right? All the, the nonsense that you hear, you know, there's a real fetishism for terminology in these progressive movements. And it's because they really try to conceal what they're saying and what they believe. Because if they had to say in plain language, and this goes all the way back to Orwell, and you can read his essays on uh, on the English language and the misuse of the English language by political movements. If they had to just come out and, yeah, that's right, Trumpify their ideology, meaning just say what it is. No more coming up with, you know, oh, it's cisgendered patriarchy and, and attacking, subverting the dominant paradigm and all if they had to just say, yeah, we believe that like there's no actual biological difference between men and women and that white males are actually responsible for the destruction of all that is good in the world because of white privilege. If they had to just actually say these things and not cloak them in this pseudo intellectual bombast all the time, people would just laugh at them. They'd be like me and you. They'd be sitting around like, who are these clowns that bring no useful skills or knowledge to the table or to the discussion, but yet want to not just dominate the discussion, they want to dictate it. They want to tell us what words we can use and how we can refer to all things, right? How we can refer to the relationship between male and female, how we can refer to, you name it, any important part of our society. They have some construct that they will ram down your throat now. And they are saying that everybody who disagrees with them is a fascist. Everyone who disagrees with them is evil. One, one more note here from Barry, Barry Weiss's piece in the New York Times. Ayan Hirsi Ali, somebody, one of the very few authors that I have an autographed, uh, or I should say a signed autograph. It sounds like, hey, you know, you're doing a great job on the baseball field. Uh, but I have a, a signed copy of her book. I think there are probably a grand total of four authors that I have signed copies of their book. She's one of them. And the Southern Poverty Law Center calls her a propagandist who is far outside the political mainstream. I mean, these are these are left wing organizations now, folks, that are just calling everybody a fascist are just saying everybody's alt right. There was even a tweet today that from Amanda Marcotte at Slate, a writer that you're probably not familiar with. She's you know, you don't need to be. doesn't matter. But she's a she's pretty known in punditry circles, I suppose. But she referred to classical liberals as people who are actually alt-right and are trying to hide that from people. So if you refer to yourself as a classical liberal now, that's actually a dog whistle for alt-right, according to the left. I know. Are you dizzy yet? Are, are, have you been so inundated with the stupidity? Is the swamp so deep and smelly that you just want to get out? I can imagine that's the case. We will be back with much more, my friends. Oh, next hour, we'll talk to a friend from the Federalist who was just down at the border. What's really going on with immigration? He'll tell us a bit about that, and then we'll talk more about International Women's Day. So big third hour coming your way. Stay with me, team. I'll be right back. We got some calls up on the lines, my friends. Let's take Paul up in Minneapolis. Hey, Paul, what's going on? Hey, Buck. Um, I was noticing that uh, Trump's uh, nuclear saber rattling and also his tariff saber rattling show that he's kind of playing a 3D chess game when everybody else is thinking checkers. Well, how so, right? Because a lot of Trump's detractors will mock and, and they'll mock Trump and say, oh, is this 5D chess? Is this 12D chess? So you got to give me the specifics yeah. of why you think it's working. Yeah, well, well, first of all, I'd say that 
the libertarians and pacifists among us, and even inside our own heads, would argue that tariffs and saber-rattling is bad. But I think that from a game theory point of view, the libertarian and the pacifist worldviews both have two big blind spots, and they're that they don't understand repeated round play, for one, and the other is that they don't understand team play or multiplayer play. And that's why they don't get the strategy. And the strategy is the threat of tit for tat. So you're saying that by doing, by taking actions that may seem aggressive or even counterproductive at first, you force the other party to have to respond in kind, and that's the only way you can actually get them to take any action in the first place. Yeah, the classic game theory example of this is the prisoner's dilemma. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh, yes, I am familiar with the prisoner's dilemma, sure. And so basically, the, the, if you're only going to play one round of the prisoner's dilemma with one person, then it always makes sense to bail on the other guy and turn him in, right? Turn in the other prisoner and let him do the time and you walk away with uh, um, the plea deal, right? Or, you know, I mean, the deal. Um, but uh, if you have repeated rounds of play in the prisoner dilemma, then it turns out that the steady state best strategy to take is it take tit for tat because you know that the next if if the other guy turns you in this round if you got another round to play you'll turn him in next round he knows that too all right my friend so well you steady- so you, th- you think north korea is the real you think this is real you think this is actually going to lead to something uh, I, I oh you mean it, you know i mean it depends on how trump plays it if he takes it seriously then probably it isn't real but if he doesn't take it seriously then probably it will be real All right, Paul, thanks for calling in from Minnesota, my friend. Appreciate it. Shields high. Adam Schiff, I haven't gotten to update you on Russia. I think our last Russia discussion involved commie bear, so maybe he'll have to come back soon. But Adam Schiff is talking some smack about Steve Bannon, Play 17. We had ample representation uh, during the interview. Um, We still haven't gotten an answer, frankly, on whether we will move forward with contempt on Steve Bannon. They were quite unequivocal at the time on the need to insist on answers, but have been very quiet since. Um, So I think they're still grappling with this. Uh, There is really no way to distinguish these witnesses, except some are in favor and some are out of favor at the White House. That's not a legitimate basis uh, to distinguish when it comes to whether we compel people to give us the information, the facts that we need. So we will have to see. Uh, We will have to see if, in fact, uh, he he goes and brings contempt charges against Steve Bannon. I just I'm so sick of this shift guy and this whole Russia probe. Though it's just such an exercise in political politicized nonsense, and I want it to stop. <sighs> I find this very frustrating, as you can tell. Um, but we'll have to wait and see if, in fact, they they bring contempt charges against Bannon. By the way, I think Bannon would love to be back in the middle of the fight. You know. Bannon's not going to back down from this at all. He'd be ready to ready to go. Say what you will about the guy. He's he's feisty. He's definitely feisty. Now, we're going to talk about the border coming up here in just a few minutes. Uh, we had a friend from John Davidson from The Federalist who was just down there in the Rio Grande sector, and he is going to tell us what it's like, actually, for Border Patrol down there, and then we'll talk about International Women's Day for a little bit. Woo! That'll be fun. Big third hour coming up. Welcome back to the third hour of the Buck Sexton Show, my friends. What's really going on down at the border? We talk about immigration a lot here in the Freedom Hut, the laws surrounding immigration enforcement, 
the Sanctuary City Showdown with uh, Jeff Sessions as Attorney General and the Trump administration finally pushing for what they've been saying they do all along. What's really happening day to day when it comes to enforcement at the border? How porous is the border? How easy is it to get across illegally? We have somebody with us now who can answer those questions because he was just down there. We have John Davidson with us. He's a senior correspondent for The Federalist. He's got a piece on thefederalist.com. On the Texas-Mexico border, migrants are overcoming every obstacle in their path. John, thank you so much for calling in. Thanks for having me. All right, tell us what you did, where you went, what you saw, and what's going on. Sure. I spent last week down in the Rio Grande Valley, which is the southeast corner of the Texas-Mexico border near Brownsville and McAllen, Texas. And I spent some time with Border Patrol there. I spent some time with uh, the federal uh, public defenders and federal judges there and some of the humanitarian workers down on the border who help migrants who have been discharged from ICE custody awaiting asylum hearings and uh, trying to really get a picture of how the border works, all of the different components from the law enforcement to the criminal justice side to the humanitarian side. And my motive for doing so um, was that so much of the debate at the national level in Washington, D.C., among policymakers and lawmakers in the mainstream media is divorced from the actual border that we talk about when you know, we talk about a border wall or immigration reform. So I'm trying to sort of shine a light on how it actually works. All right, well, tell us this. I mean, how, how hard is it right now for somebody to illegally get across the border in the Rio uh, Grande Valley sector? Well, I can't tell you exactly how hard it is for any one person to get across, but I can tell you that many, many people get across every day. Now, the Border Patrol agents tell me that in the entire Rio Grande Valley sector, they apprehend between three and 500 people a day. But, of course, they don't know how many people they don't apprehend who get through, which, as we know, is quite a few. So regardless of how many assets are on the border, how many Border Patrol agents, and let me tell you, there's a lot of technology on the border, helicopters, ground sensors, motion-activated cameras, weather uh, aerostat radar-equipped blimps, Border Patrol agents in river um, um, boats, in trucks, SUVs, ATVs, dirt bikes, horses, canine units. It's all there, right? Uh, Nevertheless, people are getting across. And the reason people are getting across is because the motivation of drug cartels and smugglers and human traffickers to get product over the border, whether that's people paying a fee, a very high fee across the border, or uh, smuggling drugs across the border is so intense that they've come up with uh, elaborate schemes to evade Border Patrol and get into the country. Did Border Patrol give you some estimates, some sense of Uh, what they think they are catching in terms of human traffic across the border as a percentage. What what I mean is, uh, if you said they catch three to 500 a day, do they think they're catching half of what actually is occurring in their sector in terms of crossings? One One in three? What do they think? You know, I asked that question over and over, um, but no one really wanted to answer it because nobody could. The best they could say is that they 
are doing everything they can, and they consider themselves to have had a good day if they apprehend a lot of people and a bad day if they don't apprehend very many people. And the reason they say that is because they know people are crossing every single day up and down the sector. Um, you know, and as for contraband and drugs uh, and people seeking asylum, most of that comes through the ports of entry. In other words, people seeking asylum will cross the border and turn themselves into the first border patrol agent or law enforcement official they can find. They're not trying to hide or get away. They're trying to be taken into custody. We're speaking to John Davidson. He's a writer for The Federalist. He's got a piece up on thefederalist.com on the Texas-Mexico border. Migrants are overcoming every obstacle in their path. Uh, Tell me a bit more, John, about what the uh, morale of Border Patrol is like. The morale of Border Patrol seemed pretty good among the agents that I talked to and and rode along with. Uh, Like I said, they have a lot of resources at their disposal. They would like more resources. Uh, I know that the agents in the Rio Grande Valley sector where fencing has been put up over the past 10 years say that that fencing helps them. It helps them in terms of allocating their resources, uh, partly because it slows down smugglers, and that buys the Border Patrol agents more time to get to them uh, before they are able to get away to a safe house or out into uh, the freeways or the towns and cities that are nearby. Uh, but the morale overall seems good. Uh, they, uh, uh, of course, like most uh, government agencies, want more funding, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. Um, and, and I assume they want, obviously, a lot more personnel with that funding. Do, do they feel like there's been a change with this administration? I feel like that would be one of the first questions I would want to ask if I was speaking to, to Border Patrol. You know, do, do you feel like... There's, there's a different tone from the top, or is it pretty much business as usual for them? Well, you know, the individual Border Patrol agents are reluctant to talk to a reporter about Yeah, I worked politics. for the federal government once. I remember what that's like, so that's fair enough. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, certainly we know that the Border Patrol's union uh, uh, has, you know, came out and endorsed Trump. Uh, the Border Patrol agents and the official Border Patrol, you know, uh, itself has, you know, endorsed the idea of more funding for a wall, more funding for assets on the border. Uh, and, and so they, you know, they are, are a law enforcement agency and law enforcement agencies want more ways to enforce the law. So that's that's the line they've taken. And in that sense, it, it aligns very much with the White House. What do you think needs to change, if anything, in terms of the way border and from, from what you saw, John, I mean, what, what can we do? What should we be doing better as a country? Uh, what, what were your biggest takeaways from being down there and actually seeing with your own eyes what's going on in the day to day border patrol and, and just trying to enforce immigration law? Yeah, absolutely. The main takeaway uh, that I have is that a a border wall uh, is not going to solve all our problems. You can put a border wall up, but you're still going to have people who cross the border. And I think there's this idea uh, in America that if we just have a wall and if we just hire more agents, then that'll solve the problem. Uh, The best comparison I can make is a border wall is to immigration what TSA is to counterterrorism. It's not that it doesn't do anything, but it's certainly not going to solve the problem, right? Um, it is a useful uh, tool, but it's just it's just a tool. I think there's a way to solve our immigration problem, but nobody's going to like it. 
And the reason no one's going to like it is because it's complicated and you have to go to the source. And I think the source is what has gone wrong in the countries that people are emigrating from. When we have collapsed societies in Central America and rampant corruption in Mexico and the decay of civil society there, you are going to have people crossing the border. Um, and, you know, that's a tougher question than a border wall, but that's that's really the heart of the matter. All right. Thank you very much, man. We appreciate it. John Davidson, everybody. He is a writer for The Federalist. Check out his piece about being down on the Texas-Mexico border. John, great to have you, man. Come back soon. Thanks for having me. All right, team, Uh, we will be getting into some of your thoughts later on this hour with some roll call. And I've got a whole lot more show planned, so don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Today, in case you did not know, was uh, International Women's Day. And this was getting a lot of play on social media and a lot of people were uh, talking about International Women's Day. Um, I'm not really sure what International Women's Day is entirely about. It seems like there's a lot of things. Uh, Women are are more than half of the planet's population, so they're not uh, a minority. And I I don't know. I I suppose this was an idea that came together because of the Me Too movement and other activist groups, I think. This is it. In the era, this is how the New York Times writes about it. In the era of Me Too And time's up. International Women's Day arrived on Thursday with a renewed sense of urgency. For many women, there was a keen awareness of a major shift in the firmament when it came to gender parity, the treatment of women in the workplace and sexual dynamics. But others scratching out lives in developing countries in Africa, toiling away at jobs with little pay in Latin America or scrambling to raise children without help in the Middle East most likely had little time left over to reflect on the day designated to celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. Um, I, you know, I, I understand that for some people, this is, they think it's a, obviously think it's a great idea. For me, um, what is this really all about? I'm still not really clear on this. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't get it. Uh, I don't think we need to be reminded that women are great it just strikes the whole thing strikes me as a little a little bit unclear a little amorphous i guess in terms of what the real uh, meaning of all this is i think that the left creates a lot of uh false paradigms when it comes to gender and there's a whole other discussion to be had there but let me just start with you know cnn for example in its coverage of international women's day went with, uh, well, shared this from Caitlyn Jenner. Play clip 10. And through that process, I think I learned a lot about women. Um, Women are kind of brought up to be kind of a second-class citizen, emotionally weaker, um, physically weaker. Uh, I've always been inspired by strong Uh, women. uh, No. No, I, I, I don't think that, first of all, women are not brought up. Oh, there, there's a lot here, folks. There's a lot here. Let me start with uh, Caitlyn Jenner there talking about transitioning to female. Caitlyn Jenner is not a female. We could have this discussion all day. I could have. It's really interesting. Usually MDs, because I've actually had some MDs reach out to me on this issue kind of quietly. 
they'll they're very happy to tell you when you're wrong on the science on this one the mds that i've dealt with uh, for the most part have been wanting to shout me down on the politics but they won't address the science and that's a really scary place for things to be folks when you have medical doctors men and women of science who will say things like well gender it you know it's it's a, a spectrum of different psychological components and i'm like no no there are biological differences people say it's sex it's not gender i'm like no we're creating artificial distinctions here and they won't tell me the science is wrong but they'll tell me that the politics is wrong and that's very and they don't want to discuss it publicly right if i went on air and i said look i don't i don't have a medical degree but let me tell you antibiotics just don't work there's no medical doctor in the united states with a, a license to practice and two people who respects him or her who wouldn't say that's a stupid statement you're wrong and here's a million reasons why but if i say that gender is in fact binary and there's men and there's women I'll get doctors to say, well, no, no, that's not true. But I don't want to I don't want to get into this. You know, that's not really let's not discuss this. Oh, OK. So it's science. But we're afraid of this. We're afraid of sharing the science. We don't want to have a, an open discussion. I also love it when I'll get people that say, oh, the scientists agree that gender is a spectrum. And then they have a psychologist come on. I'm like, well, that's not really what I'm looking for here. I'm talking biology. I want a biologist. Or I want somebody with an MD to come on and talk to me about this specifically. But I digress. Uh, she all, uh, see, there we go. The thing. Now, what is the expectation, by the way? Am I to sit here and uh, Caitlyn Jenner changed? It, it formerly, it obviously, was uh, not not the name. Um, I'm actually blanking. Was it Chris? It was Chris Jenner, right? Yeah, I blanked on the name for a second. Um, you can change your name, as I've said many times. That's why I will say Chelsea Manning. I go by Buck and have since I was an infant, but technically my name is Buckman. In fact, technically my name is James Buckman. Uh, so I'm not going to point fingers about names, which we might actually get into a whole little discussion. You know what? Put a put a pin in that one because we might get back into a little bit about what's going on with names. Um, it was kind of a funny exchange earlier today on that. Uh, but you can't change your gender. And I don't like that I'm being told that I have to be a party to a lie. Or else I now have to be a party to a lie or else I am subject to sanction. I'm subject to ridicule. I could be in trouble. And that's not the way that I like to conduct myself. It's also not the way that I think society sh uh, should function. And Caitlyn Jenner's whole thing here about. So there's one thing about the pronouns and be kind to the pronouns. There's a whole fight out there right now. And places like Canada and others, countries are legislating this so you have you have to be a party to a lie you're no longer allowed to speak the truth on this or else you'll be liable you could be fired from your job and this is how crazy things have gotten but just that that caitlin jenner says that women are brought up to be weaker no actually this is biology I understand people say, Buck, Ronda Rousey would kick your butt. And yeah, we all know that there are outliers and there are differences. You know, there are very strong women and very weak men. We get that. But overwhelmingly biology because of testosterone and because of the differences in the male-female makeup means that men are going to be larger, heavier, and stronger than women. This is not a sexist statement. This is just like saying that women are the ones that can carry and have babies. Men cannot do that. Right. There, there are differences here. 
And the efforts to eradicate those differences trespass way too far into the realm of fantasy or just outright myth, lies. And that's what we see happening here. So on a day of International Women's Day, like today, whether you think that that's a real, it's not even really a holiday, it's kind of an activist day, I don't know. But on a day that that's the discussion, I think it's worth noting that if gender is a construct, then what are we to make of all these disparities that are supposedly based only on gender? Uh, How do we even make sense of any of this? The answer is we can't. It all falls into self-contradiction. It all just turns into nonsense. But that is actually part, I think that's part of the goal here for the left. It's just create a situation where the discussion can't actually be rooted in what is true. The discussion is whatever they tell you it is. I mean, that is true, true totalitarianism. If, if you want to look at what makes a, a society truly totalitarian, it's not that you're not allowed to have your own thoughts. It's that you have to have thoughts that are untrue and you have to espouse them and pretend that you believe them publicly all the time. Right. Look at what's going on, for example, in North Korea. That's totalitarian. People there know that Kim Jong-un isn't a god. They, they know, some of them know, some of them don't, but there's plenty of understanding that they're having to go along with things that are lies, but you have no choice. You have no choice. It is the loud uh, protestation of falsehood that is a defining characteristic of a true totalitarianism. And on gender issues, that's what the left is doing. Man, They're just breaking down logic, reason, and truth and seeing how far they can go with it. So... Happy International Women's Day, everybody. We'll be right back. Yeah, you go after Beto for his name. Beto is obviously a nickname. Why? One, you didn't like that dirty pool when you were running for president, and the president called you Lion Ted. You didn't like that kind of tactic. And, you know, look, your name is Raphael. You know, you go by Ted. Your middle name is Edward. That's an anglicized version of it. He went the other way and has a more ethnic version of his name. Why go after it? You're both doing the same thing. Well, listen, you're absolutely right. My name is Rafael Edward Cruz. Oh, well, people can change their names or go by different versions of their names. I mentioned that before, and I, I just have to note that there's, there's a lot of this in politics, and it's not an accident, folks. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting when you really get into it, and I'm probably going to mention some name changes. This is, all goes toward my thesis that politics now is more than ever an exercise in branding right politics is uh as as much about selling a product as it is about selling ideas and that's why what we call something or someone matters so very much because of what the the sim uh well there's the symbolism of the specific name there's also the connotations that it it brings along but here's some fun ones uh it is true and ted cruz admitted it there there you go And I will note that that is the only time I think you'll ever get uh, Cuomo to get Ted Cruz to concede a point in in a debate. But if you want to see a really fun debate going the other way, earlier this week, Joe Scarborough tried to debate the Second Amendment on air at some length with Ted Cruz. And it's kind of like an MIT professor of astrophysics having to debate thermodynamics with a guy named Tad from the country club who yells at all the waiters, you know. That's what Scarborough is like in general and in the exchange. But names that have been changed over time, and I'm, I'm going to leave some of the great ones out here, I'm sure. 
Uh, but, for example, how many of you know that uh, if you trace John Kerry's lineage back, it was Cone, not Kerry. And some time ago, the name was changed in his family, in his family background. Um, there's also my favorite of, of the name changes is <laughs> Bill de Blasio. Because, you know, hey, he's Bill de Blasio. He's running from Brooklyn. Hey, de Blasio. Local 2-2 union welders for de Blasio. When his name, until he was in his uh, mid-20s, was actually Warren Wilhelm, everybody. Warren Wilhelm, guten tag, yeah. I'm going to run for mayor of New York City. It's going to be very efficient. Das ist gut. So he changed his name from Warren Wilhelm as an adult to build up. Now, remember, that's not a nickname. That's not a go by your middle name. That's a big change, right? That's a, quite a shift. Um, so you had Warren Wilhelm from Bill de Blasio, and somehow that guy is mayor of the largest city in the country. There is uh, Barry Satoro. That, that was what Barack Obama went by for quite a, a number of years in his life. And then he went to Barry Obama all through college. And then he went back to Barack Obama. And I think we can all understand that the, the name the name there certainly mattered, right? A big part of Obama's uh, appeal to those who voted for him, to the Democrats. And by the way, we should never let the Democrats forget, as they love to talk about how it was uh, a, a backlash against uh, Obamaism, and and there was a, a, a racial undertone to the Trump victory. That's what they're. That's what the Democrats always say. That the states that were the de- deciding, uh, the deciding states for Trump in this last election were states that went for Obama the last time. It's not about race. It's about other things. It was about the message, and it was about the economic populism and. Uh, America first and all the rest of the different components of the Trump campaign that I don't have to remind you of right now. But Barack Obama's story and background was a big part of it. And so the name really mattered. Uh, The name really mattered a a great deal. And I just think it's funny that uh, we see this with politicians. You certainly see it with actors. I I find it uh, amusing when you look back and see some of the actor name changes. That was probably... A good one. One of the stranger ones out there. Well, not stranger. I shouldn't say stranger. One of the ones that's more surprising to me is Jamie Foxx, the comedian. Well, I think he's a very talented comedian. He's also an actor. I thought he was great back in the In Living Color days, one of my favorite sketch comedy shows. My fellow Greybeard Millennials know what I'm talking about. Whoa, Greybeard Millennials in the house. Uh, but Jamie Foxx was originally, uh, or you know, was his, his name, his legal name was Eric Bishop which I think is a great name for an entertainer, right? That's a very powerful... Eric Bishop sounds like, you know, the, the quarterback of a football team or the guy who's, you know, the 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 rogue uh, detective from the department who's the guy who's going to get it done no matter how much bureaucracy is in his way. I mean, it's... It, or it could be like the guy from a Tom Clancy novel. Anyway, he went with Jamie Foxx. There's a story... Uh, the backstory is actually kind of interesting. It was because he wanted to get open mic access at some open mic nights out in california and they were desperate for female comedians so he would put his name on a list and it was at least left open to interpretation whether or not he would be whether or not it was a female and he felt like that gave him a little edge and he'd get better placement or more likely to get up uh on the stage for open mic night so eric bishop then became jamie fox natalie portman very very famous actress she was natalie horschlag and we What's in a name? A lot's in a name. 
Uh, a lot is in a name. But I would also know, I, I think it's weird that, that it seemed like Cuomo thought he got Cruz there. I mean, his last name is Cruz, right? I mean, whether you're going to call yourself Ted Rodriguez or Rafael Rodriguez, like everyone understands you've got a, a, a Latin background. So I, I don't know why. It seemed like Cuomo was trying to insinuate something there a little bit. Or maybe not. Maybe he just was trying to keep it real. Uh, but anyway, Ted Cruz, Cuomo, was, it, was, it was an exchange that happened. All right, live from Savannah, I'm going to be back in just a few with Roll Call. Stay with me. Well, I have to tell you, team, I'm down here in Savannah, Georgia, and I am very much enjoying my time here. This is a great little city. It really is. It has incredible food. The people are super nice. It was a little chilly today. I'm not going to lie. I don't want to be that tourist that gets all uppity and complains about the weather, but I feel like it, it could have been perhaps a little warmer for my arrival here in Savannah. But that said, the people are more than making up for it. The food has been amazing. The first thing I did actually here is I went down to the waterfront and went to my favorite place to get a big bowl of shrimp and grits. And it was amazing. And it was just as good as I remembered it. So I'm really enjoying uh, my time down here in Savannah. And I very much appreciate the folks at WTKS in the uh, Savannah area here, our iHeart affiliate, um, putting me up, letting me use their station and uh, being so very, very helpful. So with that, my friends, you know what time it is. Just because I'm on the road doesn't mean that we don't get to hear from all of you. As per usual, it's time for some roll call. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Indeed it is, my friends. Indeed it is. Thank you so much for uh, being here with me. As I said, let's get into the latest. I had a feeling that when you all heard... From Seabear, he would uh, loom large in the commentary, and that was, in fact, the case. Commie Bear's return got a whole bunch of uh, whole bunch of folks involved in the commentary of Roll Call. So here we go. Uh, this one coming from Tracy. She writes, I'm a few days behind on the podcast, but I'm laughing at Monday's show regarding dad chic fashion. I dress my seven-year-old son like this, and Sperry's are his favorite shoes. Look, Sperry's are amazing, and I truly hope that one day Sperry will be a sponsor of the Buck Sexton Show uh, because I've been wearing them for decades, and I just like boat shoes in general. I'm, I'm really all about something, folks. And if there's nothing else that you take from this show, at least this would be something that would be with you for life, would make your life easier, make your life a little better. Comfortable footwear. It's so important. Wear comfortable shoes. I know I sound like that guy... If you remember back in the 90s, there was this thing, wear sunscreen, and then it went into this whole life lesson. They played it on the radio for years, or it felt like, or months, whatever. But I'm not telling you to wear sunscreen. I'm just telling you wear comfortable shoes. It is oh so important, and you will be so very happy that you did. So uh, that's my... And people say, well, Buck, what if I'm going out? Yeah, of course. If you're going to a wedding, you can't show up wearing flip-flops. You're not a savage. But, you know... Pretty much any other time, uh, I, I think you can probably just roll with the flip-flops. I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, next up, we've got Larry, who writes, uh, Hey, so glad to hear Commie Bear back and at it. Please tell him from me that I expect him to pay me back the 400 rubles he borrowed from me in 98 when he was in Vutkinsk doing work for Department 12. I loaned him the money when we were on Zayavka, 
in downtown Vokinsk, and there was a Russian-dubbed Godzilla movie. Russian-dubbed Godzilla movie we had to see. Okay, Larry knows a lot more about Russia than I do, apparently. I'm like, whoa, Larry. Larry and Commie Bear running some, uh, some ops back in the day. And then also, just to throw it in there, because Larry's an awesome guy, he writes Bulldog's Rule, which is totally true. I'm, I'm all about the brachycephalic breeds, my friends. I've even started to warm up more and more to what Miss Molly views as a compromise. See, I want an English Bulldog. My family already has a Frenchie. They're great, but I'd like to get an English Bulldog. Molly loves pits. She just does. She loves pit bulls. She is a pit bull fan. There's the uh, American Bull, which I think is now, I'm not sure it's formally recognized or not, but it, it's, it's a Bulldog-looking pit bull. Uh, and in fact, on Instagram now, I, f- I follow a, a pit bull named Lil Earl Gray, who has a little cleft palate, little, little gray pit bull with a cleft palate. It's the cutest dog. I'm a big fan. Lil Earl Gray. <laughs> it's hard to say. Lil Earl Gray is one of my favorites. I, I follow him. He's cute. The Adventures of. He's a good dude. Uh, next up here is Leah. Commie Bear. I missed you. I think you might recheck your Swedish model's passports. Sounds like you picked up a little American accent from them. All right, Leah, Commie Bear may be a little rusty, but he's he's back in action, and uh, we are appreciative of uh, you writing in to say hi. Next up here, we have Steve. What's up, Steve? You're at Shields High, Buck. I love the show. Longtime viewer and listener, way back to Real News and Red Eye. Wow, OSS, and an early Team Buckaroo uh, so Steve is like original squad, super super squad, and uh, he writes listening to the March seventh podcast on the Southern Utah High School IED story. Thought of a new segment, either Where's Media, which is back to the Where's Waldo theme, or maybe uh, though a bit long, Knock Knock, Who's There? Not the media. Steve, I don't know. I think that's a bit long, my friend. He also says a segment on stories the media didn't report on. Uh, Commie Bear, welcome back. Steve, I hear you on that. And I'll, I'll definitely cover the things that I think the media is not. Uh, and that'll be a, a feature of the show. We'll think about whether we can make a branded segment out of it, though. Uh, Dave, I, I've got a lot of, okay, lots of Commie Bear. Here's Dave. Commie Bear, I've been hearing about him since I found you after the 16 election. His comparison of a Mueller probe to a Russian sailor on shore leave with two rubles in his pocket had me laughing out loud. I look forward to future reports. Shields high, Buck. Well, thank you, Dave. And yes, Kami Bear is our special Russia, Russia correspondent. Uh, we've been keeping him on the injured reserve list for 2017, but now going into 2018, we will certainly be in a, a position to, to bring him back into the action more and more. And next up on Roll Call, Joe. Hey, team, what is the name of the new Roll Call intro music? Joe, um, I don't even know. We just get it from a music library. I spend a lot of my free time listening to music that we have a license to use. So it's, it's called the, the genre of music, which you may or may not be familiar, familiar with, is dubstep. And I think the most famous dubstep DJ to this day is Skrillex. And you either like Skrillex's music or you hate it so much that you refuse to call it music. There's really not much of a middle ground, uh, but it is indeed dubstep. So if you're looking for something that sounds like it, start with that. And uh, I'll try to figure out what the name of I don't even know what the name of it is. So I'll have to give that some some thought. 
Uh, next up here, Paul. He's got he's got some thoughts for us. He writes, "Hey Buck, love the podcasts. I grew up in California. What these politicians are doing is overreach, stupid, and illegal." In addition to being illegal, it is being funded by California tax dollars. Ridiculous. Well, Paul, you know, I agree with you. I'm a pretty uh, hawkish on immigration, much more so than uh, many of my fellow conservatives even are. I just view this as, as an issue where we've been programmed to think a certain way. And part of that is that we have been forced to suspend our critical faculties here. We're not really allowed to... Uh, think through the problem. That's where all the slogans and the propaganda, things like uh, doing the jobs Americans won't do or we're a nation of immigrants, right? These are the first things that come to mind. And it is because the propaganda has been so very effective. When you think of one of these problems and automatically words are popping into your mind that don't come from your own thought processes or your own analyses of the situation. You just know, oh, yeah, that's right, nation of immigrants. That's the, that's the subliminal aspect of what the media does all the time. It's also why, and I call myself out for it. I'll say things like, yeah, the undocumented, and then I have to stop and say, Buck, no, that's what they're trying to do. Undocumented is a made-up nonsense term. I've fought the same fight on Islamophobia. It is a made-up nonsense term. People are not... People do not have an irrational fear of an ideology. They either like or do not like an ideology, and they have good or not good reasons for their feelings. But it's not an irrational fear situation. It's not arachnophobia, where people are terrified of spiders, or agoraphobia, where people are afraid of being outdoors, right? That's not an accurate description of what goes on with Islamophobia. But another discussion we will have to put on hold for now. Uh, Stacy is up next. She writes, stuck in traffic for a long time this morning, listening to last night's show. Just had to say, Commie Bear has made the morning a little better. Well, thank you, Stacy. And Comrade Commie Bear sends you a little furry hug and and all the best. And he has he, we got Commie Bear t-shirts up on the website, folks. BuckSexton.com. Go grab some gear up on the site. Always uh, love it when you can go check that out. I'll be back with you live from Savannah, Georgia. Sorry, I'm going to stop saying it that way, unless the Georgia folks listening say I can. I'll be live with you from a, from Savannah, Georgia, as we say in New York City. Uh, but I, loving it down here. Really excited to hang out with some of uh, my, my area Team Buck squad. I'm hoping you'll show up tomorrow. If you're listening to the show, you're the Savannah area. Tomorrow, right around noon, I'll be at the Nine Line Apparel Store outside of Savannah, Georgia. Looking forward to meeting whoever shows up. I'll be hanging out there for hours. So until then, my friends, you know what's up. Shields high.